Good morning. I want to ask you a question before we jump in today. What would you do if you found the ticket for a million dollars? What would you do if you found a scratch-off ticket worth one million dollars? That's exactly the question that Abishah was asking just recently in Southwick, Massachusetts. His family owned a convenience store, and as he was throwing out a stack of scratch-off tickets, he noticed in the midst of the diamond million scratch-offs that there was one ticket that had been put in the pile to be thrown away that was actually a million-dollar winner. He picked that ticket up, and he noticed that the stack that it was a part of was a stack that had been discarded by one of their regular kind of customers who would come in during her lunchtime and buy a stack of them and scratch them off and then slide them over to the edge of the counter to be thrown away. And Sean knew instantly whose they were. They were Leah's. This is exactly what Leah did every single week at their store. He waited for her to show up, and she didn't the next day. And so knowing and feeling the weight of having a million dollars that belonged to her, he went to her workplace just down the road from the convenience store, and he knocked on the door. Now, as you can imagine, she responded the way any of us would respond if your convenience store clerk showed up at your workplace. She was like, oh, my goodness, has my card been declined? Like, do I owe money? Is there, you know, what's going on? And he said, no, I'm here because I'm here to change your life. And he handed her the scratch-off ticket worth $1 million. And here she is holding her check for a $1 million. Now, I asked you that question because this whole entire series This idea that a little bit of wisdom goes a really long way. This whole big idea of this series is that better questions help us to make better decisions and experience fewer regrets. That good questions have the ability to unlock good decisions, better decisions, and fewer regrets. And over the last few weeks, I've introduced you to a couple of different questions that are meant to serve you as you're going through the course of life making choices and decisions. Especially knowing that we're on kind of the precipice of a new season, a new chapter of life, one that's post-pandemic. And that you and I have an opportunity in this next chapter of our life to write some things intentionally and not just live it accidentally. And that one of the ways that we're going to do that is through better questions. And so this week, I want to introduce you to the third question in the course of our series. And like every single week, I've reminded you that Andy Stanley in his newest book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, has inspired the best part of every single one of these messages. So if you've really enjoyed this series, then I think you're really going to love his book because the best content comes from him anywhere. It's his questions. And that he had an inordinate amount of influence in my life early on in my Christian journey because of this idea of wisdom living and questions and reflection. And I'm so grateful that he put some of that almost 25 years of ministry into a book to help guide decision-making because he's been guiding my decision-making 
for a while now. That as a pastor, he really helped to set my kind of framework of life through the Proverbs and this wisdom frame that has helped me not just be a better husband, but also be a better father and a better pastor. But I believe that God gives us wisdom, and it is a gift. And it's one that no matter who you are, no matter what your intelligence quotient is, no matter what your education, wisdom is something that can allow you to shine in a world filled with a lot of knowledge. But you can't Google wisdom. And so God has given us that through Proverbs. And a lot of what I've been talking about the last few weeks and the next few weeks is going to come from that proverbial wisdom frame. And so today I want to take you to a, maybe a story you've perhaps never heard before. It's a story that's not too unlike this million-dollar ticket question. It's a story found in a two-volume set in the Jewish scriptures of the Christian Bible, a, a group of books that we call First and Second Samuel. They're named Samuel because Samuel was the first and significant person that the books were started by. Samuel was a prophet who meant that he had a very special relationship with God and served as a conduit from God to the king because Israel in this point of time is getting ready to establish what we would call in the political sphere a theocracy. And a theocracy was a government that was ruled by a king who was seen as a kind of an extension of God's intention. And that the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, specifically Deuteronomy, outlined what the Jewish nation was meant to look like under this theocracy, that God had set the laws and the king was the one who was meant to enforce them. That was what the theocracy was. It's not a very common government structure today, but it's something that in the ancient world wasn't too uncommon. And so Samuel is the prophet to help usher Israel into this theocratic reign. Samuel picks Saul, who becomes the king, and Saul is a man who's, um, everything on the exterior looks good about him. His resume is really impressive, but he starts to make a series of choices that starts to disqualify him. Remember, the king is meant to be an extension of God's intentions, and he keeps making decisions that's confusing a lot of people about who God is. And so God sends word to Samuel, hey, let Saul know I'm not going to continue through him, that I'm going to raise up another king that's going to replace him, that's not going to be a part of his family. And so, lo and behold, as the story unfolds, Saul is doing what most kings do. He's leading his army, and they're battling a group of people called the Philistines. And the Philistines have one specific warrior that's internationally known. It's a rocket microphone. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, and a guy named Goliath. And Goliath is this towering figure who shows up and for 40 days keeps the Israeli army. One man keeps the entire Israeli army paralyzed with fear. And then, lo and behold, David shows up to bring some Ritz crackers and cheese for his brothers who's in the army. And when he arrives, he sees Goliath. And in an act of bravery and in faith, David steps out and kind of, kind of in that famous moment, that's almost globally known, David, this small shepherd boy, defeats Goliath, the warrior giant. Well, it turns out that David is the guy that God has chosen to be the next king. And David is a really good warrior. 
What he does on the battlefield with Goliath, he will do over and over and over again in the Israeli army. And eventually he becomes one of the leading commanders of the Israeli army. There's even songs sung about David, that he's killed tens of thousands, that he's this great warrior who never loses. And yet there, that same song that's going around has a little bit of a, another verse. And it's Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul begins to get jealous. Saul recognizes that God is going to replace him. He becomes very astutely aware that David is going to be that replacement. And Saul develops an extreme amount of jealousy. Now, what's interesting about jealousy is it's, it, jealousy can easily turn into a very murderous desire. Now, I don't mean you literally get jealous of someone and you want to murder them. But when you get jealous, have you ever noticed that you do murder in a lot of little tiny ways? You want to kill their reputation. You want to kill the success they have. People are like, oh, man, look, look at how beautiful she is. Or look at how successful he is. Or look at their house. Or look at their car. And you're like, well, da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, have you heard she uses Botox? I mean, we have a way, right, of taking little jabs and murdering their reputation. Murdering the narrative around them. Jealousy wants to take something from someone because you're angry you don't have it yourself. And this is exactly where Saul is, except that his jealousy intent actually becomes murderous. Saul decides that the only way he's going to get rid of this threat from David is to kill him. And so this is where we pick up in the story in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Saul is trying to find David, who's now living on the run. David is a great, great warrior, but he's also a really good leader. And every time someone has a series of success and they follow David into the battlefield, Saul's jealousy towards David turns to them too. And so what's happened over time is David has built up a group of men who follow him, who are living like he is as a fugitive, trying to escape Saul's wrath. And so they're hiding in the wilderness in a series of very remote caves, and Saul gets word of it. And this is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 24. It says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, crags of the wild goats does sound like a really sweet band name, but what the crags of the wild goats actually was was a series of caves deep in the wilderness in the desert and that these kind of hilly mountain rocky outposts, these crags, were where a a group of wild goats would live. They would live inside the caves. They would climb, climb up down the rocks. And Saul gets word through his spies that, hey, David and the men who are following him have gone into that area. And so Saul takes his 3,000 men, and he goes there. Now, Saul arrives, and as he's coming into this area, you have to realize that the crags of the wild goats is a pretty small area. So 3,000 men um, gets really cramped in it. And so as we're going into this area, it would have been really obvious to David and his men who were hiding in that area that Saul's army is coming. They would have heard him. They would have seen him from their position up on the hillside. And so 
David and his men begin to disperse and hide and kind of go into the caves with the thought being, well, Saul's going to get here. He can't reasonably search all of the caves there. He'll probably miss us. We'll just let him pass on by. They made sure there was nothing there for anyone to notice that they'd been camping out there. And then the story gets interesting. It says that Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. This is an area where shepherds would oftentimes bring their sheep through this pass. And there was a cave there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. I mean, like, you can't make this stuff up, right? Here's this rocky outpost. Saul, who's the king, has to be dignified, has a moment. He's realizing nature's calling, and he's got to respond to nature. So Saul leaves his 3,000 men, and he climbs up, and he goes into a cave so he can have some privacy. Because the, the Hebrew, let's just put it this way. Saul's not doing number one. Saul's looking for a quiet, serene place to do number two, which is why he steps into the cave, because he doesn't want any of his men to see him. And he takes his robe, he throws it off to his side, and he has an undergarment that he then drops, and then he squats. Now, that's Saul's perspective. Imagine David's perspective. David is sitting, they hear the men coming up, they're stepping further and further back from the cave, and then the army stops. They're like, oh man, they just stopped down there. What are we going to do? Push back, push back, push back. So now they're in the back of the cave, and they're whispering, what do we do? Let's just be quiet. Maybe they'll keep moving. And then, if you've ever been in a cave, you'll know that a cave is visually for the eye is a really stark experience because you've got the darkness of the cave and you've got the brightness of the entrance of the cave. And lo and behold, what walks into the silhouette is this man who was unmistakably Saul. Because what you may not know about Saul is that the average Israeli man in this time period, almost 3,000 years ago, according to historians and scholars, was only about five feet tall. We know from historical accounts that Saul, the first king of Israel, was over six feet tall. And so in a day and an age where every man was five feet, the six-foot man walking in would have looked like Shaquille O'Neal. Everyone instantly would have known, that's Saul. So Dave is pushing his men back. And they're like, David, that's Saul. David's like, yes, I know that's Saul. Go back further further. But as Saul gets closer, they notice he's beginning to derobe. He throws it over to the side and then he squats. And they're looking at each other like, can you believe this? Oh my goodness. Like, David, this is the moment. I mean, in fact, that's not me guessing. It's actually what they say. The men say to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're like, David, here is the moment. Imagine, David, Saul walks into the cave and you walk out victorious. I mean, I can hear the music playing in my head. It's like, boom, 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 boom. Here's your new king, David. And they're like, where's Saul? He's dead. He was taking a dump. And I killed him, 
right? I mean, like, that's literally what they're thinking. They're like, God has set this moment up. David, this has been handed to you. This is incredible. Clearly, this is God's will that this happens. Like, no doubt, this is what God instored. Like, can you believe the fortune? And so, David, further back in the cave, with Saul's back turned to him, starts to slowly creep up. David's a warrior. David knows how to fight. He's pulling his sword. He's getting closer. And each step, Saul doesn't turn around. Saul doesn't hear him. David's getting closer and closer, but there's something else happening too. As David is walking, step by step, pulling out his sword inch by inch in order to slay Saul and to kill him in his back. As he's getting closer and closer to cutting off not just Saul's head, but Saul's kingship, something inside of his head and heart starts to spin. He's heard his men say, kill the king, become the king. This is what God wants. This is clearly God's will. But with every step that David takes, something inside of him is starting to question it. Kill the king, become the king. This is God's will. I can end it all here. My men can finally stop living as fugitives. We can stop sleeping in caves. We can go home. He's like, kill the king, become the king. Will I really become the king? See, here's the problem that we all have. His men had it. David has it. And no doubt, you and I have it too. We overestimate our ability to predict the future. We overestimate our ability to imagine what happens next. And this is exactly what his men have done. And this is what David is doing. And David's starting to realize, if I kill the king... Do I really become the king? Or maybe I just become a murderer. I mean, this isn't war. This isn't combat. He's literally using the bathroom, and I'm about to kill him in nature's porta potty. Is this the way I want it to go down? And it says that as David gets closer, that he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, you need to know from... David's men's standpoint, this perspective back here, they've watched it, and what they see is a brilliant, strategic, kind of condescending moment David has just done. You see, as a Jewish king ruling in a theocracy, the Levitical law, which was the law that's found in the book of Leviticus that guided and directed the theocratic judicial system of its day, it was really clear that men were to have on the edge of their garments, on the corner of their robes, a very specific ornamental item to reflect kind of that wherever they go, they're with God and that they're cognizant of his presence in their life. And so by David cutting off the corner of his robe, his men would have been like, oh my goodness, he's making a divine judgment on Saul. And then, because Saul's the king, 
what was on the corner of his robe was even more ornamental. In fact, you could have identified Saul, not just with his six-foot height, but his robe that he had with the corner of that robe would have been very distinct. His ornamental trappings on the edges and the corners of his robe would have been instantly recognizable in Israel. It was a symbolic gesture, his men are thinking. He's just cut off Saul's kingship. He's saying to Saul with a flip of his sword that Saul, you are no longer the king because I'm about to become king when I kill you. But David, in the moment, has had a realization. You don't kill the king and become the king. You become a murderer. God is the one who made Saul king. God is the one who promised to David that he would one day become king. And David's realizing it's not in my role. It's not in my responsibility. I don't have the authority to remove Saul as king. Only God can do that. I am literally taking into my hands God's decision and doing it in a way that God would never have approved. And to help us understand, the biographer of David's account says that afterwards, after the moment he does that, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. David, on the inside, as he had been walking towards Saul, had had that increasing tension and realization that while everything on the outside and everything about the circumstance seemed like it was a go, something on the inside kept screaming no. Kept telling him, this isn't right. You shouldn't do this, David. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. And he's having this tension, this war on the inside. Everything, everyone in the cave is saying this is the thing to do. Except the thing inside of him is telling him it's not. And I think it's worth realizing the amount of courage it took David to do this. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you made a major life decision? And because of a hunch that it wasn't the right thing to do, you pulled out at the very last minute. I mean, David was literally just inches around from Saul's head. Had he not? I mean, everything in him was like, finish the job. And Saul, the, David at the last minute, just inches from Saul, changes his mind and pulls back on this major, major decision. I mean, it's like we, we want to scream at the people, you're a you're a chicken if you get to the top of the, the diving board and you choose not to jump. But we miss sometimes that it takes more courage sometimes to actually climb back down the ladder and to say to people, I'm not ready for this. That it actually takes more courage to do that than to cave to the pressure of everyone saying, jump, 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 jump. Don't be a chicken. Because you look like a fool when you climb down the ladder. David had to go back to his men and tell them what had happened. And it had to make the point to them, hey, you don't do this. You don't kill him. We're going to let him live. It was a really big, risky move. Which is why I 
open this message with the story about a convenience store in Southwick, Mass. Because what was interesting, a couple weeks ago, in the Washington Post, the story's written, and they're interviewing Shah, who was the employee. And I want you to hear what he says to the interviewer in between the, the few days between him finding the ticket and him showing up at the workspace of Leah. He says this, we had mixed emotions, being the whole family. It's a million dollars. We didn't sleep for two nights, but I don't know what happened. My inner soul told me that's not right. You know who that person is. You should give him that ticket. And that's exactly what I did. What David's experiencing in that cave, his conscience telling him this isn't right, even if everything about it feels right, is exactly what Shaw describes in his interview with the Washington Post. He just uses the word, my inner soul told me, that's not right. You know. No one else may know. She will never know. But you know. In a moment, he did something that many of us can look past in the course of of decision making. He puts into practice the very essence of what we see David embodied as both a principle and a practice. One that I think forms the basis for this third question that I want to give you. And it's simply around the tension that you and I feel sometimes when we're making a decision. Now I don't mean that sometimes there's just some unknowns and some uncertainty and you can't predict it, right? I mean, if you do investments, you know that there's no guarantee your retirement account is going to hit X, Y, and Z, right? There's just some unknowns to that. I'm not talking about the unknown. I'm talking about what you know on the inside, that tension that you feel. Can't put your finger specifically on it, but it's like somebody has said something or something inside of you is bothered by what you're doing. And I would encourage you to let that bother that you feel bother you. To actually stop and pay attention to the tension inside. That let it bother you until you know why it bothers you. Don't ignore it. Don't brush it off. Don't push it aside. Because it may be God's way of protecting you and keeping you from making a decision, you'll likely forget one day. You'll regret one day. I mean, had David made that decision, think about it. The decision to kill Saul would have been his biggest life regret. How do I know that? Why do I think that? It's because imagine fast forward 20, 30 years from now. Grandfather, I don't know why they have that accent, but let's roll with it. Grandfather, tell us the story about how you became the king. Well, there I was, grandson. I was hiding in a cave, and Saul and his army of 3,000 men came into the area. Oh, and grandfather, did you run out with a sword and defeat all 3,000 of them? No, grandson, even better. I slid back into the cave, and I waited, and I lurked. And then Saul 
came into my cave. Oh my goodness, grandfather, did you pull out your sword and battle him and defeat him epically in a battle? Oh no, no grandson, it's even better. He came down and he relieved himself. Oh, you mean like grandfather, he said, David, you're such a great warrior. I relieve you of this battle and I surrender. No, grandson, even better. He did the number two, and he squatted down. And as he squatted, I crept up behind him, and I killed him, and I became king. Oh, I'm so proud of you, grandfather. You're so brave. I know, grandson. I am, right? Well, no, like, David would have regretted that decision. And I think practically, David would have lived the rest of his life with a suspicion that if that's how he became king, how could he guarantee that someone coming behind him wouldn't become the king that way too? I mean, if David, the one everyone celebrates, is the king because he killed the original king, then he justifies that decision by the next person too. And it would have been one of David's biggest regrets. And he would have lived the rest of his life with a gnawing suspicion every time he went to the bathroom, every time he went out on the battlefield, that when the people went through a hard time with him or there was a dark period of Israel and maybe a famine or whatever, that someone else wasn't lurking in the shadows waiting to remove David from the throne. And this is why when you and I find ourselves in a decision that the tension that we feel inside could be God's gift to help prevent us from making a decision that becomes one of our biggest regrets. And the way that you can kind of help to uncover that is whenever you feel that tension, to ask yourself in the midst of a decision you're making, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there something inside of me that's uncomfortable, that's unsure, that's bothered about the decision I'm getting ready to make? And do I need to do something about that? Let it bother you so that one day you're not bothered by the decision you made. That becomes an epic part of your story that you had the courage to trust and to look inside as you're making that decision and ask yourself, is there a tension that deserves my attention? So I don't know, is there? Are you facing a decision right now? Maybe it's a relational decision. Maybe it's about your marriage. Maybe it's something to do with a family member. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's something in your personal life that you've been doing that no one knows. Maybe it's a purchase you're getting ready to make. Maybe it's a purchase you just made. Is there a tension that deserves your attention inside of you? That question has the ability, that simple little bit of wisdom has an ability to go a really, really long way. Korean flight airline 801 is perhaps one of the more famous um, air crashes in airline industry. It happened in 19, 
97, August 6 to be exact, the Korean airliner was coming into Guam to land. Some fog had descended, and as they were coming in, the, what they didn't know was that the beacon that transmitted the location of the runway for foggy days just like this had actually gone out. And as he was landing the plane, as the captain was directing and putting himself in position, he was locked on to what he thought was the beacon for the airport. As he kept flying, as he kept moving that way and dropping his altitude like you're supposed to do as you come into a descent, he began to get this alert from the ground impact sensor radar system that was built into the plane telling him that he was getting close to the ground. But he's like, there's no way. I'm, my altitude is 1,400 feet. How can I be about to hit the ground when I'm at 1,400 feet, and there's a little bit of chaos that's playing out inside of the cockpit. And so he ignores the ground impact sensors, and he keeps flying, and he keeps descending as he's locked onto the beacon, guiding him to the airport. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, 229 people lose their life as the Korean air flight goes straight into the hillside of Nimitz Hill. See, what that captain had overlooked or missed or forgotten was that Guam's airport is unique, where many airports actually have their home and beacons, their kind of GPS pinging system that directs planes on their location, while many of them are physically positioned at the airport. Guam's is actually positioned on a hill about three miles away from the airport. It's not a secret. It's on every aviation map when you're plotting coming in to Guam. But because the captain had started focusing on that beacon signal, because that captain had chosen to elevate that beacon signal, he'd started listening to the wrong voice guiding him in his decision. And in the end, he started to ignore all the other sensors that was telling him that there was danger that he was approaching the ground. In his mind, because he was choosing to silence and ignore all those other voices, what he was choosing to listen to was telling him he's almost to the airport. He needs to keep going lower. And he never once considered that maybe what he was in fact doing was flying right into a hillside that would ultimately take the lives of 229 people on board. You see, Saul had ignored and silenced that inner tension, that inner voice. That the story isn't just a celebration tale about what David did. It's also a warning about what Saul did too. Saul had began to listen to the wrong voice, the one of jealousy and suspicion, the one that had projected negative motives on David and what David was doing. And in the end, Saul's listening to the wrong voice would be the reason, just like that Korean airline flight, that Saul would no longer be the king and he would lose his life in the battlefield seven chapters after this chapter. And I, and I hope that as we've worked through this story today, that maybe for you, 
that you see both in the celebration and a caution to be very careful to pay attention to the tension that you feel when you make decisions. And the reason this matters is because it's very easy to become David, but it's even easier to become Saul. And that if you ignore that voice, if you ignore and silence it long enough, you'll stop hearing it. And in the end, you'll end up making choices that lead to your biggest regret. In fact, we're in a culture now that's obsessed with this idea. For David, it was very clear as he was creeping up to Saul that day, right? Is this the right thing to do? Is this good, what I'm doing? That our cultures replace that question with, does it feel good? Then it is the right thing to do. And that inner voice, that inner tension, is something that we should all work really hard to dial into, to pay attention to, so that we experience better decisions and fewer regrets. Because sometimes that inner tension is God speaking to you. I imagine for some of you, maybe over the last few weeks or maybe even today, you felt that tension more than you felt in a long time. That maybe God's trying to get your attention through that tension. And that maybe it's worth pausing and reflecting and asking the question, why do I have this tension? And to start paying attention to it. Maybe it's God trying to tell you, hey, for years you've been spiritually disconnected from me. You've been going through the hoops and checking the boxes, but inside there's a part of you that just is uncomfortable or unsure where you stand with him. And maybe for you, you've never had that peace of like, man, if, if today it was all over, I'm okay. I, if, if I blinked and this was my last breath, I'd be in front of him entering into heaven. Maybe for some of you, there's a lot of uncertainty. And maybe that tension is God trying to get your attention so that you don't have to feel that uncertainty anymore. So that you can have that peace and that joy that comes from knowing you are right with him and that you are good with him. And maybe if that's you, it's just simply you saying to God, God, I feel this tension, this this uncertainty about where I stand with you. God, I repent, which is just that fancy way of saying, I turn from the way I used to live my life, and I'm turning to you. I trust what Jesus did on the cross for, was, was for me. And I lean all of my weight into his hope and his sacrifice. That maybe that's what God is trying to get your attention with. And that just simply by uttering that to him, that while it may seem simple, it's a lot like Amazon's one click. It is simple, but it is because someone else has paid a significant amount of price through time and energy to make that one click as simple as it is. That what Jesus did on the cross drastically simplified what you and I have to do to come back to be restored with him. Maybe for some of you it's a decision that's looming on the edge you're about to step into. And for you today is the day, like David, where you don't follow through 
but you step back and to say, God, am I really following you in this decision? That you pay attention to the tension and you decide, I'm going to pay attention regardless of what the choice leads me. Maybe it's today you confess for the first time to someone you love about an affair. Or maybe it's for the first time you're finally coming clean about an addiction you have. Or the chains that you're wearing with the decisions you're making in your life. That maybe today is the first day that you stop ignoring and you stop and you start letting it inform you. And to help you kind of process, because that's a lot, right? I want to leave you with three questions. One is, have you ever paid attention to the tension? Do you have a name for that internal warning system? Shaw in our story and what happened in Southwick, Mass., he called it his inner soul. For David, it was his conscience. But do you have a label for it? Have you noticed it? What do you call it? Have you ever been really close to pressing go on a big decision, but at the last minute bailed for no other reason that something about it just didn't seem right? And maybe this is something you, a story you can share with someone to help remind you and to give you courage in the decision you're about to make. And did that more information surface? L- later, did something come out that you're like, oh, Man, I'm so glad I didn't make that choice. And the third and final one is, in what ways does our memory verse, this idea of Proverbs 27, 12, that I encourage you at the beginning of the series, to support the habit of paying attention to the tension. And the verse, and for those who haven't yet memorized it, it says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. How does that verse kind of give the foundation for what we discussed today? Because here's what I know. For all of us, that way we may not always know what's on the other side of the decision. A better question can almost always guarantee that we make better decisions and ultimately in our life experience fewer regrets. And one of the best questions to ask ourselves as we stand in front of any major decision is, is there attention that deserves my attention?